from the new, new missions and from this area, George Tatellis. There we go. Good morning. Do you have the power? Get ready. Audience, get ready. Today I want to share with you the power. Where you are going to receive the power through Jesus Christ. Amen? My name is George Tellis Jr. And I'd really like to start by telling you some family stories. Who I am. Who I am, where I'm coming from. Each and every one of you has a story where you're coming from, your history, story about your father, your mother. I'm an Italian. My mother, my father, Italian. And uh, that's my heritage. That's who I am. My mother's grandmother, Marian Luiza, came from Sicily. Now, Sicilians. Uh, even more proud than Italians. A Sicilian thinks that they are better than an Italian because they come from the little island of Sicily off, off the coast of, uh, of Italy. And uh, my great-grandmother came from this little village, Salemi, Sicily, which was up... I've been there. I've preached in a church in Salemi, Sicily. It's on the top of this hill and all vineyards round about. Her husband came to America first, came to Boston, had a job, and then he sent money for my great-grandmother to come. And she left Salemi with two children in an old steamship, coal-powered steamship. It took two weeks on the boat to get to Boston. Arrived here with two young children and uh, her husband. They were Italians. They spoke Italian. He was a laborer working construction. And after she was here in Boston for about nine months, her husband was buried alive on a construction site in Boston. And so my great-grandmother was a widow with two young children. And uh, she ended up marrying another Sicilian from Marcella, another village on the coast. And they had uh, four more children. They were immigrants, they were Catholics, they lived in tenement houses, they were laborers. And uh, she had a daughter, Anna, my grandmother, Anna. They were living in a tenement house, and one day my, my grandmother asked the, the landlady if she could go out on the fire escape and water her flowers. And the landlady said sure, and gave her a big glass pitcher, and my grandmother walked out on the fire escape and began to water the flowers. And as she was walking, she stepped into the spot where the ladder is. And she fell down three stories, tumbled down the stairs, ended up in the hospital. And uh, my grandmother was in the hospital for about like a year. And then they, after that, my, my grandmother always had uh, health issues. And they were living in a different tenement house. And 
they were was owned by Christians, Pentecostal Christians, from a church in Boston called Boston Christian Assembly, Cambridge Street in Boston. And the landlady kept trying to get my great-grandmother to go to church. Why don't you come? And she said, no, no, no. And then one day she said, if your God can do anything, take my 13-year-old daughter, Anna, and see if he can heal her. And so they took my grandmother to church. And in that church service, my grandmother was saved, healed, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Little Anna DeMarco. My grandmother just passed away in June, 100 years old. She was one month short of 100, Anna DeMarco. My grandmother had a passion for every person in this world to know Jesus the way that she knew Jesus. And she always had a scripture. Her favorite scripture was Hebrews. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And uh, soon my grandmother was going to this church. And then her mother went and her father, they all got saved. And, and uh, my father's story is similar. My, my father's father was an Italian immigrant. Uh, my grandfather... Never owned a home, never owned an automobile, never had a driver's license. My grandfather was a peddler in Haymarket Square in Boston. He'd been to Boston, Haymarket Square, and he had a horse and a cart, and he sold fruits and vegetables in the market. And that's how he made a living, buying it wholesale, selling it retail. And they lived on the third floor of an apartment. When my father was 16 years old, a car crashed into my grandfather's cart and killed him. And my grandmother ended up being a widow and couldn't pay the bills and ended up living in projects of Boston. My father uh, struggled and there was some woman from this church, Boston Christian Assembly, that came to visit my grandmother, knocked on her door and began to share the gospel with her. And in that project, my grandmother gave her life to Jesus Christ. And soon she began to go to this church, and there was a youth pastor, Pat Bossio. And my, grand, my grandmother said, Pat, my son's not doing good. You know? Pat called, came, picked up my dad, brought him to youth group. You know, my dad was living in the project. Picked him up, brought him to church, brought him to youth group. And in that youth group, my dad gave his life to Jesus Christ and got a call in his life. He wanted to be a pastor. And my dad went off to a little Bible school that used to be in Massachusetts, Central New England Bible Institute in Framingham, Massachusetts. And uh, after his first year of Bible school, went home to the project to be with his mother. And that week, his mother passed away. And now this teenage boy, my dad was probably like 18, 19 years old. He had no mother. He had no father. He had some older siblings. And the housing 
department told him that because he was an adult, he was over 18 years old, he couldn't stay in the project, and they gave him two weeks to move out. And so my father had to rent a room. He got a job in a restaurant, chopping up vegetables, prepping for salads, and saved up money and worked his way through Bible school. But in that church, Boston Christian Assembly, Pastor Lanza, uh, he met a little young, beautiful young girl in that church, my mother. And my mom and dad were saved and uh, went off and pioneered a little church. And my dad took over a little inner city church in Worcester, Massachusetts, Calvary Evangelistic Center. It's an independent church, Pentecostal, old building built in the 1800s in the, in the middle of the city next to the Memorial Hospital. And um, dad pastored. And we lived in a little house that my grandfather had built on my great-grandfather's, on his father's farm out in West Boylston. A little old house. My dad, I remember it was a Sunday morning. I was probably like 11 years old, 10, 11 years old. And the church had a board meeting in Sunday morning service and voted to raise my dad's salary to $75 a week. And dad started to cry. And, and uh, we were on food assistance back then, like welfare food assistance. This is before the days of, uh, what do they have now, EBT cards? Is that what they call it? Food stamps. This was before food stamps. My mother would go to the welfare office, and they would give us government commodities. Is anybody here old enough to remember government commodities? Amen. All right. And you'd get a gallon can of peanut butter, right? A gallon can of peanut butter. And, and blocks of cheese, big giant blocks of cheese, and, and bags of oatmeal, and... Um, and then there was this meat in a can. It was like quart cans of meat. And it said what it was on the top, you know, like beef tongue. And, and my dad tried to fry up that meat and get us kids to eat it. We wouldn't eat it. The only person in the house that would eat that meat out of the can was our cat. Every month we'd get that, the welfare food. We had a lot of grilled cheese sandwiches. Mom would, she could cook stuff up with oatmeal and flour. But all that meat in the can went to the cat. Amen. Well, I was a young teenage boy. I was about 15 years old. And um, going to school in this little town of West Poils. And I really got into with the wrong crowd of kids. I was not a good student, and I got in with the potty kids and wasn't paying attention to my grades and, and really got in a lot of trouble. And my family, my dad was going to sell this little house, and we were moving to Worcester, Massachusetts. We were going to move into the church because we had started a Christian community. Dad had bought a little three-decker and a single-family house. It was Christians living around the church building. And there was a little apartment on the second floor of this house. It was like a kitchen, really. And there was a bunch of bedrooms. And we were going to take these hodgepodge rooms in this church. And we were going to move into the church. And I convinced my father, when I was 15 years old, I said, Dad, we're all going to move to Worcester. Let me move there early so I can switch schools 
to try to turn it around. And um, so that's what we did. So I went and was living alone in the inner city of Worcester. I don't know what my dad was thinking about. Would you let your kid live alone? But my father grew up in the city, and he was very independent-minded, and he wanted you to get out there and figure it out. You know, he'd throw you right out. And, <clears throat> and so I was living alone in this church in the inner city, and up on the third floor, I made a bedroom in the third floor. There was this room behind the sanctuary, and we put a lock set on the door so I could lock the door, and I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor. There was a desk in there. I don't remember any of the furniture. There was a desk and a mattress, and my stuff was just laying around. And the, the school department sent me to North High Annex, which was a school just for sophomores. So it was only like 15-year-olds in this school, downtown Worcester on Walnut Street, ancient brick building from like Charles Dickens era. I mean, it was a dungeon. And I went from, you know, this school in the, in the suburbs to the worst school in the, in the, in the district, in the whole city. And uh, they, scold, they, they closed the school down that year. It was the last year the school was functioning. And, and I was this out-of-town kid. It was May... 1976, and the kids were beating me up, and I wasn't doing good, and I didn't want to go to the school. And um, so I'm living alone in the church, cooking my own meals, and we only had one phone in the church. It was the church phone number. And so I overslept one morning. Phone rang, and I very dutifully answered the phone. Hello? And um, it was Helen from the school. Hi, this is, you know... And um, Colin, because, uh, you know, George is not in school today. And I said, I'm sorry, but George has to help me do some work today. He won't be able to come to school. <laughs> and she says, all right, but be sure, make sure that he's in school tomorrow. I said, okay, very well, thank you, goodbye. I hung up the phone, I was, and so I... <laughs> I got off. So the next day I slept in again. The phone rang. It was Helen. And she said, I'm calling from, you know, the school and George isn't here. I said, I'm sorry, but George has to help me do some, some more work today. And she said, George, you get down to this school right now. <laughs> and I panicked. I'm not going back to that school. So I decided I was going to run away. And there was this worship leader that played guitar for my dad. He lived in Southbridge. And I don't know if I packed up some stuff, but uh, I hitchhiked to Southbridge. And I showed up at the worship leader's door. And, uh, and I stayed with him for about a week. And after the first night, he says, well, we need to call your dad so he knows that you're okay. And so I talked to my dad. I wouldn't tell him where I was. And by, finally, by the end of the week, I decided it was time to come home. And my dad and I agreed that I would meet him 
at this seafood restaurant on Main Street in Worcester, and it had like a front of a ship that, the bow of a ship that stuck out onto uh, the sidewalk. I met my dad, we had a big lunch, and, and uh, he treated me like the prodigal son, you know. He just loved me and took that wayward sheep home. And then I was back home in our little house in West Boylston. And so we told the city of Worcester that I was moving back to West Boylston, but we never told West Boylston that I was back. And I said, Dad, I'm not going back to school. And in June, I turned 16, and I decided to drop out of school. It was a high school dropout. I was a tough kid, you know. And um, that summer, we moved into the church, sold our little house, so we moved to the church. Um, you know, we, we really were poor, but I got, we were the proudest people you ever met. You're the poor people, the proud people. And um, we were Christians, and we believed God, and, and we knew that we were special because we had this special relationship with God. You know, we're, we are believers, and we have this special relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, I got a job working at a plastic factory at the bottom of the hill, Daypole Plastics. And every day I'd walk down the bottom of the hills, big old factory, and we made coolers, insulated, you know, like beer coolers for picnics and a lunch. And all winter, we made tens of thousands of these coolers. And we had a box packing machine, and I ran the box packing machine and pallets full of these coolers, and we filled this warehouse to the ceiling, to the sky. And uh, in the spring, the factory closed down. They laid everybody off. And um, in our little church in Worcester, we started supporting a feeding program in the country of Haiti. And the first Sunday of every month, we would collect up nickels and pennies for Haiti. And for six cents a day, we could feed a child. Six cents a day, and every that was our early beginnings. December 26, 1979, 10 of us from the church went off to Haiti on a short one-week missions trip. I had worked all summer for a car dealer washing and waxing cars and driving cars around. And I spent my entire life savings to go on this missions trip to Haiti. It was a life-changing experience in my life. When I came home, I saw who I was as an American. We live in the greatest country in the world. The system that we live in, the Constitution, there's something special that we have here in America. We need to love it. We need to fight for it. Soon we began to go to Haiti every winter. It's cold up north and would go to Haiti every January, February. And on one of those trips, a pastor showed us a piece of land, five acres on the ocean for $7,500. And after about a year, we made a decision to buy that. March 1982, I was 21 years old, went back to Haiti with my dad, and we purchased the land, and we set the date for January 6, 1983. We're going to go to Haiti. About that same time, we were printing a lot of stuff, and my dad used this printing company in Worcester called Saltus Press. 
And um, the guy that owned that company, he said, George, he said to my dad, you're starting a mission in Haiti. He says, I own a piece of land in Jamaica. You want to start something in Jamaica? He says, I'm going to donate this piece of land to you to help you start the mission. Well, he and his wife had gone to Jamaica on a vacation one winter, and they had bought a little house lot. And then he and his wife ended up getting a divorce, and he still owned this house lot. He had this deed, but his wife owned half of it. And so he gave my dad whatever the papers were. He says, if you can figure this out, you can have it. But then his first wife still owned half. And so my dad went with her, and she agreed to donate her half to our mission. So then my dad got the husband to sign off in his half and the wife to sign off in his half. And then my dad flew to Jamaica to investigate this house lot in Montego Bay. It was in a development with, you know, nice houses. And um, so there was this house lot, and the neighbors were from New Jersey. It's a Jamaican family, and they lived next Jersey. And when they talked to my dad, they wanted to buy the land, and they agreed on a price of $15,000. And so my dad came home. He had a buyer for the land, and we really needed that money for the mission. So dad had hired some Jamaican lawyer, a woman, and um, <clears throat> she needed to, like, Transfer the deed or something. Well, a long period of time went, Dad. My dad gets angry, you know, and um, and I said, Dad, I'll go to I'll go down to the I'll go to Jamaica for you. I'll get the deed. I'll go do it. And so somehow my dad and I decided that I would go to Jamaica and go confront this lawyer. And um, so instead of calling her, I said, No, I want a surprise her. <laughs> I was a crazy kid. I don't know what I was thinking about, John. But, so I flew to Montego Bay, rented a car, stayed at the Holiday Inn, and checked everything out, found this lawyer's office. I came in on the weekend, and then Monday morning at 9 o'clock, I showed up at the lawyer's office, told her who I was, and I says, I'm here to get the deed. And she said to me, has your father died? She says, no, my father hasn't died. He sent me here to get the deed. She was all shooken up. And she took me and she put me in this little side room. She said, well, wait, you wait here. And there was an open window, uh, Bogan Villa down below. And um, she left me there for like an hour. I could hear her making phone calls. All of a sudden, I was just gripped with fear. Just swept over me. I was like, I'm all alone. I'm in a foreign country. What have I gotten myself into? And like, I was just gripped with fear. In that moment, I began to cry out to Jesus. And I began to quote scriptures. And I began to pray. There's a scripture that came to me was that he would send his angels to round about us. I began to imagine angels all just filling up that room. There's angels sitting on the window. And I just began to imagine... All of a sudden, faith began to swell up inside of me. I went from tears to, to a lion. Your greatest point of faith will come in the moment that you're gripped with fear. Right? When you're most afraid is when you'll cry out to Jesus. And you'll have 
faith breakthrough. If you read all the stories in the Bible, Jacob, he had his wives and his family and his children. He's going, his brother's coming with an army. He's afraid his brother's going to kill him. And he sends him off and Jacob is hiding in the bushes. And in that moment of fear, he takes a leap of faith and has an experience with God. Fear is a very natural, God-created emotion. God put fear in you for a purpose. So that when danger comes, you'll jump out of the way. Every animal is filled with fear. A little bunny rabbit in the yard, you make a little noise. What happens to that bunny rabbit? Woo-hoo! The bunny rabbit gets a, full of fear, and all of a sudden, the bunny rabbit takes a leap. Or there's a deer grazing out in your backyard, and if he sees you or hears a little noise, what happens to that deer? Boom, takes a leap of faith and he's gone. And the same is true of us. We can, we will experience fear. But in that moment, when you're gripped with fear, you need to take a leap of faith. And in your weakness, in your most desperate moment, when tragedy strikes, when your mind and your imagination is filled with fear of what might happen, in that moment, you need to take a leap of faith and cry out to Jesus, and quote scriptures and believe God. And in your darkest moment, in your moment when Peter was gripped with fear, is when he had the greatest faith to step out of the boat and trust in Jesus. Amen? Second Timothy 1.7 For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love and self-discipline. This morning, I'm here to tell you seven powers of the Christian believer. And today, I want you to leave here filled with the power of God. I want you to get a hold of that fear inside of you. We're in a pandemic. A hundred year pandemic. It's real. It's something to fear. But in our darkest moment, I want us to grab a hold of our faith in Jesus Christ and experience the power of the believer. September 16th. I flew home to Florida. I'd been here in Massachusetts. Almost six months, I run a, a Christian children's camp in the summertime. We were closed down this year because of the pandemic. My scripture this year was 
Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And I was believing God. This is going to be our finest hour. We're going to run this children's camp. We're going to do it. We're going to serve. God, you're going to use me. And the government shut us down. September 16th, I flew home to Florida. My daughter, Julianne, and my son-in-law, Joseph, live in our home in Florida. Got a nice little house. And they live in one of the bedrooms. It's home for two weeks. My son, Joseph, works for Chick-fil-A. He caught COVID-19, gave it to my daughter. Within a week, all three of us tested positive for COVID-19. I'm in Florida. I'm afraid. And we all had to go through this. And as I was going into the battle, I didn't know how bad it was going to be. I had a friend in the hospital with COVID. The Lord gave me a battle scripture. Going into a battle, you need a battle scripture. And the battle scripture that God gave me was Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Amen? I began to quote that scripture over my I began to claim the blood. And the first power that we have as believers is power in the blood. Amen? There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Amen. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Word of their testimony That's the second power. Power in the word of your testimony. Have you ever been to court to testify? Has anybody been to court? You've been to court? Huh? I've been to court. You raise your hand. You promise to tell the truth, the whole truth. So help you God, I do. Our testimony is our confession of faith. Romans 10, 18. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. We are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you have a confession of faith? Have you made a confession of faith? Jesus is Lord. I confess. I give my life to Jesus Christ. There's power in our confession of faith. Three. There's power in the name of Jesus. How do we pray? In the name of Jesus. That first day in Haiti when we arrived with tents, arrived at the airport, five tents, built a little campfire. We took a wooden stake and each of the missionaries took turns hammering that stake into the ground. In the name of Jesus, we claim this land for a mission. 
In the name of Jesus, we bring the gospel to Haiti. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. When you want something, you shout it out. In the name of Jesus. In 2000, I wanted to go back to college. There was a school in Orlando, Winter Park, north of Orlando, Rollins College. They had an executive MBA program. I wanted to get my master's degree in business administration. The executive MBA, I loved the program because it was 72 weekends every Saturday from 8 o'clock in the morning till 5 at night, two four-hour classes and one hour for lunch. And it was like a structured program. You signed up, you were on the course, and it was, it was clockwork. I wanted to go. But to get into the program, you had to take the GMAT exam, and you had to get a minimum of 500 on the GMAT. I already told you I was a high school dropout. It took me eight years to get a bachelor's degree. I wasn't a good student. I'm not, I'm just not that academic guy, you know? Maybe I just see things in a different light. So uh, a friend lent me this little GMAT practice software. So I was practicing on the GMAT software, and it would tell you what your score was. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to make it. So I signed up with Sylvan Learning Center. It was like 250 bucks to take the class. And um, the day finally came. I paid the money. I was going to take the exam. I could have changed. It's no, it'll be like practice. So I'm driving for a 1 o'clock appointment to take this exam. In the middle of downtown Orlando, I just got angry. I'm going to spend four hours taking this exam. I'm going to flunk out. Then I'm going to have to take it over again. I'm going to have to pay them 200 bucks again. And I just got so angry, and I just began to pray. I started shouting and screaming. And driving through downtown Orlando, I started shouting, In the name of Jesus, 500 in the GMAT. In the name of Jesus, God, I'm believing you for 500. In the name of Jesus, 500. In the name of Jesus, God, I'm believing you for 500. In the name of Jesus, 500 on the GMAT. I just began to shout it out, shout it out. Drove up, got to the place, they gave me the pencil, they locked me in the room. <sighs> I sat in front of the computer screen, I filled out all the boxes, I, you jump around, try to guess, you know, you learn from one question to answer the other question. It got done, it's five o'clock. The lady says, well, it's... It's 5 o'clock, it's the end of the day. If, if you want to wait a little while, I can give you a test score. I says, yeah, I'll wait because it's 5 o'clock. The traffic to get home is going to take me over an hour. She came back like 15 minutes later. She said, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. You got exactly 500 on the GMAT. Here's a copy of the exam. Okay, I'm going to put it right there. Hey. Amen? Oh, what was I thinking about when I was driving home? Oh, man, God, I should have asked you for 600. 
Amen? Power in the name of Jesus. There's power in repentance. Power in repentance. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, we don't talk about repenting anymore. Repent and ye shall be saved. I'm here to tell you there's power in repentance. There's power in repentance. Whenever something's going wrong in my life, I just start repenting. Jesus, I repent. I repent, Lord, just forgive me. Forgive me of my thoughts. Forgive me of my failures. Every day we need to repent. There's power in repentance. You know, when you repent, you go from being wrong to being right. Just like that. There's power in repentance. There's power in the word of God. God watches over his word to perform it. Jeremiah 1.12. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Jeremiah 23.29 says, my word is like a hammer that breaks rock. Do you believe there's power in the word? God doesn't make threats. God makes promises. He doesn't make threats. God makes promises. And this Bible is filled with the promises of God. And you need to read into that. Read the story so you can get the lessons from all the other men that have gone before, all the women that have gone before, and get a hold and claim every promise in the Word of God. Amen? My grandmother, many a time she'd quote to me, be sure your sin will find you out. God watches over his word to perform it. And tomorrow you can buy a newspaper and on the front page you'll read a story about somebody that thought they could keep their sin a secret. But the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Because God watches over his word to perform it. Great men in the Bible, when they were going through a trial and a struggle... They would quote the word of God to God. When Jesus was tempted three times, he said, it is written. And he quoted scripture. There's power in the word of God. In my phone, I have a little, little document called declarations. And I like to make little one-sentence declarations. Sometimes I'm feeling overwhelmed. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I feel like I'm under attack. People are... Uh, uh, scheming against me. No weapon for me shall prosper. You get a hold of those scriptures. You write them out little, boom, little punches, one sentence declarations. There's power in prayer. 
Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Seven, there's power in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all through Judea, Samaria, and at the ends of the earth. Not by power, but by might. One of my declarations. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The anointing breaks the yoke. John 20, 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would breathe on you. Right now, we're all afraid. Don't breathe on me. (laughs) Right? Don't breathe on me. But this morning, I want you to say, Jesus, Breathe on me that I might receive the Holy Spirit. Amen? I'd like us to spend three minutes praying right now. Let's just pray for three minutes and think of those declarations. Maybe you need to repent this morning. Maybe you need to claim the blood. You need a healing. You need a, you need a breakthrough. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Amen? Lord Jesus, we lift up your name in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that your power would be manifested in this church, that there'd be healings, that there'd be miracles, there'd be signs and wonders. Lord, that your word would be on our lips. And in that moment when we are fearful, that we would speak your word, that we would experience the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen? All right. At this moment, I would like to show a little video, if that's possible, if it's queued up. I don't see my... Yes? Beautiful. Uh, about uh, four years old my mom brought me to school at Newtions my parents didn't have money to send me to school I was dreaming to become an engineer hearing things about Christ I feel oh it's it's good to be a part of this and um when I was uh, about uh, 17, I was getting baptized in Bodmer, Napoli, and in the ocean. After, I was dreaming to be a part of the change that I have in mind, um, to influence people. I manage a school. Being a pastor, it's a, I, 
I feel that I live in my dream. If I have that possibility to meet my sponsor, Janice Baker, I will thank her for being a part of me, of my life, and uh, to influence my life in a good way. Without her and through new missions, I don't know where I would be. There's a lot of children on the street, you know, cleaning cars because their parents cannot send them to school. It would be important if someone could sponsor a child. My prayer for Haiti, it's one day for the people in Haiti turn to Christ because Christ is the greatest need that Haiti has. Amen. I remember 1983, we had a little school of 135 children. And the very first student was my niece, child number one, and her little sister, Frida. $15 a month, you could sponsor a child back in 1983. Many of you sponsor children with us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. You're doing a great work in Haiti. My brother's there today. We're building more schools. Kids are getting fed. Good things are happening. The churches are robust. I have some children out on the table. If there's anybody here that wants to sponsor a child, you can uh, sign up today. It's a wonderful thing. Pastor, would you come and uh, dismiss the church? Amen. Thank you. I want to know what happened to the lawyer's office. What happened to the lawyer? You left us in the lawyer's office. Oh, I forgot. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. So, you know, when she put me in that little room, I could hear her drinking. She went straight for the liquor. And she, I could hear the glasses. And she was, she was an older woman. And she made a phone call, and she called, um, she called this, like a, a courier that would go to Kingston. She says, well, we've got to go to Kingston. All the paperwork's been signed, but we have to go to, to Kingston to record this document. So this guy showed up, and he was like the courier, and he said, well, I go on Tuesdays. We can go tomorrow. It's five hours on the bus to Kingston. I said, no, we're going to fly. I'll buy your airline ticket. And so the next day, he and I met him at Montego Bay Airport. We flew to Kingston, rented a taxi. I was paying all the way and went to the, like, the courthouse and we recorded this document. And then I flew home and like a month later, in the mail, she sent us the deed. And then the people in New Jersey, I called them. It was $15,000. I met them at Newark International Airport at front of some terminal gate, and they gave me a, a bank check for $15,000. I gave them the deed, and I went home, and Daddy, here's the money. All because you cried out to God in the lawyer's office. Thank you, George. George, how many, how many children do they educate and feed? Haiti and the American public, probably uh, about 10,000, a little under 10,000. Okay, right now. Okay. Thank you. I hope you were touched. 
I said in the beginning when I turned it over to him, the decisions we make, either yes or no to opportunities, have a ripple effect. His father made a decision all these years ago. This literally had the ripple effect of tens of thousands of children whose lives have been changed. And it's impacting, and there are many other ministries there, impacting a nation and other nations. And I wonder what decisions we have to make, opportunities that God gives us. Thank you so much, George. Appreciate your passion. Appreciate your story. I learned some things about you I didn't know before. Two things we're going to do. In a moment, we're going to receive an offering for him, for the missions. And again, you can give in the back with an envelope. You can mail it in because we'll collect it over this week. Or you can text it in, go online to the church's website. Or you could text it in. In this case, it would be FCC guest in this case. So I'll give you the opportunity to prepare that. And the final thing we want to do is give anybody that may be here this morning or watching, and we're so glad that you tuned in this morning, watching online, to do what George did all those years ago, what his parents did, what his grandparents did, is to give your life to Jesus Christ. You've seen a change that's taken place and the effect of that change in his life.